Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. On this month's Masters of the Universe, myself and co-host Amanda Albright are pleased to be joined by the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board's President and CEO, Mark Kim. This edition comes at a time when municipal fixed income is feeling pressure from evolutionary forces. In fact, one of the best analogies we can give is that munis are actually like the John Dutton of fixed income, Yellowstone Ranch, and the asset class is hell-bent on resisting any sort of change or threat. However, if we take a step back and look across the landscape of investing, we could all agree that more change and transparency is never a bad thing. For those that are not familiar with Mark or the MSRB, they are the principal regulator of the $4 trillion municipal securities market. Before becoming CEO, Mark was the chief operating officer from 2017 to 2020 and served on the MSRB board of directors from 2015 to 2017. Prior to the MSRB, Mark was the Chief Financial Officer for the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority and the Assistant Comptroller for Public Finance and Deputy Comptroller for Economic Development for the City of New York. It's safe to say this man knows a lot about munis, and we're very happy to have him here today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us. It's definitely been a very eventful um, year for the muni market. So what has this past year been like for you, Mark? Um, and, you know, are there some initiatives that you've been super focused on that you'd want to walk us through? Sure. And thanks to you, Amanda, for the invitation to participate in this podcast. It has been a challenging, but also an, an exciting year to be a regulator. And you probably don't hear regulators too often say how exciting it is to do their job, but it is because the municipal securities market is evolving. Even though, Eric, you said there's a lot of resistance to change, change is inevitable and change is happening. We see it with, for instance, the growth of electronic trading in our market and the prevalence of alternative trading systems or ATSs in our market. We're seeing buy-side firms using increasingly sophisticated technology solutions to evaluate bond prices, to source liquidity, and to manage risk. So we at the MSRB have to evolve with the market to be able to ensure the public's continued confidence and trust in us as the principal regulator of this market. So I'd love to highlight two strategic initiatives that are underway that are designed to advance the public trust. One concerns our rules and the other concerns our technology. With respect to our rules, we have a major initiative underway to modernize our rule book to reflect that evolving market. So one example of what's happening in our market and the changes that are happening in our market has to do with COVID, which obviously has, has changed everything about everything. But COVID has also impacted the capital markets. It not only caused a very severe market dislocation back in March of 2020, but it's also changed the business of financial services, which used to be very office-centered. And what I mean by that is underwriting sales, trading used to happen on big floors 
in a centralized office building. Investment bankers would either be out pitching clients, or if they weren't pitching clients, they would be back at the office uh, working on the next pitch to make to clients. But COVID changed all of that. And we saw deals being pitched on Zoom from home. We saw bonds being underwritten from dining room tables and bonds being bought and sold from spare bedrooms. And so here's a question though. Yeah. Are any of those deals oversubscribed, the ones from the bedrooms or the dining rooms? <laughs> I I think they were because we saw yeah. uh we saw the market continue to grind forward and function. But some of those changes, I think, might be permanent. Hybrid work, there are aspects of hybrid work that might still stay. And that raises some problems, potential problems with our rule book, which was written for a business model that was very office centered. And, and let me give you just one example of how we're being forced to modernize our rule book to reflect an evolving market. MSRB rule G27 outlines a firm's supervisory responsibilities, which includes an, in, an annual inspection of all of its remote offices. So when you've got a bank with thousands of employees all working from home, you've now got thousands of offices that you've got to go inspect in the <laughs> middle of a global pandemic, which obviously is impossible to do. And so the MSRB provided regulatory relief to the industry and temporarily waived the requirements under our supervisory rules for those annual inspections of, of remote offices. But now that we're coming out of COVID, I think we need to revisit that rule and potentially modify the rule to account for a more permanent hybrid model, potentially. And so we are going out for comment to better understand how the business model of finance might have changed and how our rules have to change with it. Um, another example of how we're modernizing our rule book is not only focusing on the rule itself, but there's an entire body of interpretive guidance that sits behind the rules that's intended to help regulated entities both understand and comply with our rules. We have about 10 times more interpretive guidance than we do actual rules on the books. And we are going through that interpretive guidance to make sure that it remains relevant and that it reflects current market practices. Are there any are there any guidances that you could just point to off the top of your head that are just extremely outdated at this point? Because, I mean, the fixed income in general has, has really gone through a huge shift over the last, let's say, 10 years, not even including the last five. Um, so I would imagine just how sort of antiquated the muni business is in some regards that there's probably a lot on the books that just doesn't make sense at all. Absolutely. And and I can give you one example, and one's just a quirk of how we've maintained our interpretive guidance, which we are now going to change because we think it caused, it creates some market confusion. But once we previously, once we had issued a piece of interpretive guidance, it it stayed on our books, even if it was superseded by subsequent guidance, or even mm -hmm. if the rule that it was providing guidance for has been amended. And so we are going back to kind of uh, rationalize and right-size that. So some of the interpretive guidance that is still officially on our books goes back 10, 20, 30 years 
back when um, you have paper paper trades happening with bonds and you had yeah. to submit um, official statements in paper to customers. So obviously those are the types of practices that no longer are relevant and 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 the market has evolved that we need to modernize. But there's one other. Oh, sure. Sorry, if I might, there's there's one other initiative that is currently underway that I wanted to share with respect to our rules and and thinking about how we are trying to modernize our rule is a coordinated examination with both SEC and FINRA on fixed income market structure. And this is a regulatory initiative that is a priority and a focus both not only for the MSRB, but also for the SEC and for FINRA. We are looking at market structure issues. And in particular, the way I like to think about this initiative is really in three different ways. We are looking at the pre-trade information that is available to market participants before a trade is made, what types of information is available. We are looking at the types of disclosures that are being made to investors at the time of trade. So we've got pre-trade information, we've got time of trade disclosures. And then finally, we are looking at post-trade transparency. In other words, once a trade is executed, how quickly does that information get transmitted to the market? And I know that that's a subject that we're going to talk about in just a moment, but that's, I wanted to just put that conversation in a broader context of looking at fixed income market structure and looking at it through the lens of pre-trade, time of trade, and then post-trade. Just a quick question on just the pre-trade transparency, because just the muni market in general screams to me nuance, right? It's just, it's a word that constantly comes up and sort of given the nuances of the muni market, right? So number of QCIPs, inability to short fragmented market structures, you know, is the thought that implementing like an equity style approach going to be overly difficult or, or nearly impossible? It is absolutely, that's a great question to ask, Eric. It's absolutely going to be challenging to implement a centralized exchange type of market structure that we have in equities for fixed income for exactly the reasons that you said. The municipal securities market in particular is perhaps even more unique than the corporate debt markets and 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 the treasury markets. Um, the diversity of the number of issuers, the number of QCIPs, the even the deal structures. Looking at uh, you know how we've got serialized bonds, we've got term bonds, we've got very unique call provisions. All of these things make it very hard to centralize trading of that type of an instrument, but. The question around pre-trade is not so much whether trading can be centralized on an exchange, but really what are the information asymmetries that exist in the market and are investors potentially being harmed by not having equal access to pre-trade information? Where are the bids? Where are the quotes? Um, you know, where Where's price discovery happening? That is an area that is the focus of our pre-trade initiative. Interesting. Well, I mean, just to kind of connect some uh, dots, so, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Mark, but I know, so last year, 
Um, the new SEC chairman, he said that he wanted to bring greater efficiency and transparency into the trading of fixed income assets like munis. And this kind of sparked a lot of tea leave reading in financial markets about what did he mean? What does this mean? And so is, is what you're talking about now, is that kind of related to Gary Gensler's comments last year that kind of sparked a lot of um, interest in what this would mean for, for regulators? Like, is that kind of what you're talking about? It is, Amanda. And, and this aligns with the MSRB's mission and strategic goals as well to focus on market transparency and creating a more fair and efficient market. So our our regulatory interests align, which is why this is a coordinated initiative between the SEC, FINRA, and the MSRB to take a look at something like pre-trade in isolation just for the muni market and not yeah. any of the other fixed income markets at the same time doesn't make any sense. And it would only work if it was a coordinated regulatory effort. So it is um, something that we're looking at both in the muni market, in the corporate market, as well as in the treasury market. I think the the common theme that comes up whenever you discuss transparency in the municipal market is how much it's going to cost dealers, right? Because there's implementation costs and, and inevitably what's good for retail is expensive for those selling bonds. So I guess the, the question that I would have is, I it's my understanding that, and, and sort of bridging into the one minute trade reporting, right? Because we're sort of heading in that direction. There was a lot of comment letters received I think large majority of them were negative. How does that sort of play in with sort of weighing the fact that you want to protect retail investors and not harm the industry at the same time? You're absolutely right. And Eric, you were really kind to say that the comments we received were kind of negative. I would say they were. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say hate mail, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, closer to that, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so just just for the listeners, just to give them context, this is about um, the time of trade reporting requirement under MSRB Rule G14. Currently, just to provide a little bit of background on that rule, which I think will be helpful in understanding where we are today and where maybe we ought to be going tomorrow with respect to post-trade transparency. Back in 2005, the MSRB adopted Rule G14 on trade reporting, which established the current 15-minute reporting requirement. And so anytime a trade is executed within 15 minutes of that time of trade, it must be reported back to the MSRB. This rule has been in place unchanged for 17 years. Meanwhile, as we've been talking, the market has evolved. We've seen electronic trading, we've seen ATSs, and the growth and prevalence of um, both of those in our market. Today, over three quarters of all trades are reported within one minute of execution. In fact, I think, I believe the exact figure is 77% of all trades today are reported within one minute of time of execution. However, it's essential to understand what's happening with that approximately 25% of trades that aren't being reported within one minute. And are there legitimate reasons why certain types of trades cannot be reported within one minute? The MSRB, together with FINRA, issued similar proposed rulemaking across the markets that we regulate to propose a one-minute time of trade reporting requirement. And the comments that we received 
were uniformly opposed and thought that that was a bad idea. And one of the arguments that was raised, one of the concerns around moving to a one minute time of trade reporting requirement was the potential impact on small firms. And in particular, the fact that this proposed rule would create undue financial and regulatory burdens on small firms and might even cause small firms to go out of business or to exit the muni market. So this is a very, very important concern. We take it very seriously. And in terms of next steps, there are really two next steps that the MSRB is engaging in. One is internal, and that internal next step is to do additional data analysis. There are some small firms who report almost all of their trades within one minute already. There are some small firms that are not reporting their trades within one minute, and we need to go deeper into the data to understand what it is about those small firms that are able to report all of their trades within one minute versus other firms that may not be able to report. That's the internal piece, doing additional data analysis. There's a complementary external piece, which is really on stakeholder outreach and talking to the broker dealers that are in the market and better understanding what the constraints are and, and what the challenges might be. There are three high level trends that I wanted to share that are, that, that are interesting observations about trade reporting in our market. One trend is that larger size trades take longer to report. And in particular, block size trades, which we define as 5 million or above, take the longest to report. How long do they take, if I may ask? So they're closer to the 15-minute window, whereas smaller, what I might characterize as retail size trades, yeah. are much closer to the one-minute okay. reporting time. So, I mean, I, I know this is probably a silly question, but wh why does it take a dealer longer to report a larger trade, right? The, the, the QSIP is the QSIP, the, the trade partner is a trade partner, and, you know, the counterparty is a counterparty. So all that being equal, I'm just, what does the par size have to do with the longer, I guess, reporting time? And so that's exactly the question, Eric, that we'd like to ask the dealers who are trading large size trades. Why do they take longer to report? Um, a, a, a second trend that we see is that the trades that happen away from an ATS take longer to report. So we still have, given some of the unique features of the muni bond market, we still have a relatively high percentage of voice brokered or negotiated trades that might happen over chat that presumably take longer to report than a trade that might be routed through an ATS. And then third, the third trend that I wanted to share that I think is, is very insightful is that less active firms in terms of overall market participation and by trade count, less active firms in the muni market take longer to report than <laughs> more active firms. Now, there is a correlation smaller firms tend to be less active 
by a number of trade counts. So, so there is that kind of tie from less active to smaller firms to the conversation we just had about whether this regulation, proposed regulation, would impose any undue burdens on that type of firm. Um, and so these are all additional questions that we have that we, one, are looking to the data for more insight, as well as doing outreach to the broker-dealer community to better understand what the dynamics are in terms of trade reporting. This is so um, interesting and definitely a hot topic, as um, you guys alluded to with the kind of comment letters being very, very negative. And so I think one of the concerns that is unearthed from all of this is that, um, you know, the number of dealers that are active in the market continually declines. Um, there's always that really interesting chart in some of the MSRB spec books where it's just a bar chart of the number of dealers continuing to slide down. Um, okay. And, you know, I think on top of that, this has been a really bad year for um, banks and underwriters in general with volume declining so much. Um, you know, is is there a fear of driving more dealers out of the market or, you know, they're dealing with this drop in volume as well as potential regulatory changes? Is that kind of the concern at this point that more of them could go away? So one, thanks, Amanda, for citing MSRB research. Of course. I'm excited <laughs> that you... Uh, or, you know, are familiar with it. And yes, this is a longer term trend that we have been watching and, and that causes some concern. And that is the number of registered broker dealers in the muni market. Mm -hmm. ten, 10 years ago, there were over 1700 registered broker dealers in the muni market. Wow. T today, there are a little over a thousand registered yeah. broker dealers, which represents a decline of approximately 40% over the last decade of the number of registered broker dealers. Do you, does the MSRB have yeah. statistics on how much liquidity has gone from the market? Because it's not just a straight line equation and say like we That's have 40% right. less liquidity. Um, you know, is that something that you guys have figures on? So that's really difficult question to to nail down. What impact has that has those dealer exits from the market had on on liquidity? Dealers, there's no doubt though that dealers are a key source of liquidity, especially in the muni market, where yeah. there's so much one-off bespoke retail trading happening in QCIPs that, for the vast majority, over 99% of the QCIPs in our market won't trade on any given day. So dealers are providing a very, very important source of liquidity for this market. And, and, and that is concerning. Um, those smaller firms that likely were the majority of the dealer exits from our market were not transacting a very large percentage of the trades. But that said, the trades that they were providing liquidity for, they no longer are. And so um, the question is, was there another liquidity provider available? And did another dealer step in and um, provide that liquidity? And, and, and that's a question that, that, that's hard to answer, but that's also why with respect to the conversation we just had about time of trade reporting and proposing to bring it down to one minute, why the concern that has been raised in some of the public comments about a potential disproportionate impact on small firms and that 
the regulatory burden and the financial costs of potentially getting down to a one minute trade reporting time might just be too much. And some small firms that aren't very active in the market might just throw up their hands and say, it's not worth it for us to build up that infrastructure to be able to trade a handful of bonds a year. And that that is concerning. And that is something that we need more and better information about before we're able to move forward with any rulemaking in this area. Really helpful. I, I want to talk about another um, topic that has been surprisingly divisive, in my opinion, which is um, the Senate um, bill, the Financial Data and Transparency Act. I hope I got the name right, um, but um, Financial Data Transparency Act. Um, so I, I want to talk, I'm going to start over on that, this question. Um, I want to talk about another topic that's been sort of divisive in the market, which is the new um, Financial Data Transparency Act that was introduced in the Senate. Um, we've seen a lot of lobbying from government groups like the GFOA um, that have come out um, strongly against this legislation, which would essentially, um, you know, mandate financial reporting um, for, you know, muni issuers, which currently isn't mandated that they have to do, um, I guess, like machine readable PDFs type of thing. Let me know if I have any of this wrong. Um, but what, like, what do you make of this um, backlash? It seems like the MSRB would have a role in implementing this legislation if it's enacted. Um, and just to, to me, it doesn't sound that heinous to require governments to release financial information. So can you walk me through like, your take on this and how just how burdensome this would actually be on on governments. Sure, I'd be happy to. And you're you you've got it just right, Amanda. Um, first, I would just note that the legislation hasn't passed, and that we have a change in control in Congress and in the House, and possibly a fifty-fifty split in the Senate. And so, I think all bets are off at this point on on whether any legislation is going to make it through Congress. But that said, people who have their ear close to the ground on Capitol Hill are are saying that this bill does have a chance of passage. So we're monitoring it closely. And as you said, at its core, what this bill would re require financial regulators like the MSRB to adopt rules providing that financial statements and other regulatory filings have to be made in a machine readable format, similar to what is currently done for public companies who must file their financial statements in XBRL with the SEC. So let me give just a little bit of background on the current regulatory framework and the state of data quality in the muni market, because I think that's really what is causing some of the concern and some of the pushback that we're seeing against this legislation. So one, in terms of the current regulatory framework, it is very well established that neither the MSRB nor the SEC has regulatory authority over the content of issuer disclosures. So the SEC and the MSRB are not able to establish the data standards for what state and local governments must report in their financial statements. So that's well established. And there's a view that this bill, the FDTA, would kind of chip away at that, um, that current regulatory framework. 
and ultimately lead to the regulation of state and local government issuers in terms of what their financial disclosures are. And then second piece of backdrop that I think is important to understand the dynamics that are happening here is just the current state of data quality in the beauty market. So the MSRB, as you know, serves as this market's sole and central repository for market data. So we literally have terabytes of data at the MSRB and the vast majority of it is in unstructured format. And I don't want to get too technical down, down a rabbit hole and talk about structured versus unstructured data, but what, what unstructured data means is we get PDFs that are not able to be analyzed or downloaded or um, uh, extracted by machines. Machines can't read those PDFs. So what happens is a human has to open up the PDF and kind of read it and pull out the information that he or she needs from that document. And obviously that's far less efficient than being able to have your computer do it and download um, your financial statements. So the state of data quality in the muni market does lag other capital markets in part because of the regulatory framework and some of the constraints that exist within the regulatory framework. So the goal of this legislation, according to the Senate co-sponsors of the bill, is to make data more transparent and more accessible to the public. I think the bill would actually accomplish these two objectives. It would make it more transparent and it would make it more accessible. But the real questions in my mind that remain unanswered are, one, how much is it going to cost and who's going to pay for it? Two, what would be the benefits of that greater transparency and accessibility today? And then three, what are the risks of unintended consequences? And, and if I could just spend a quick minute and talk about each of those. Um, on the cost side, there's no doubt that creating machine-readable financials will impose some cost to do. The MSRB has been trying to get smarter about machine-readable technologies. And so we've actually gone ahead and created machine-readable financials for the MSRB's own audited financial statements in XBRL. And we went and hired an outside technology vendor to come in and embed machine-readable tags in XBRL just so that we could better understand how much, did it, how much does it cost, how long did it take, what's the administrative burden, so on and so forth on staff, et cetera. So we have some lessons learned internally and some experience with XBRL. And just as uh, a side note, I'm sure, Eric, you're going to ask me how much did it cost us to get our financials yes. uh, tagged uh, and machine readable? It cost us about $20,000. So one time, one time fee of $20,000. Yes. And then presumably, uh, what, a nominal ongoing sort of surveillance cost? No. Uh, so with the financials, they're kind of audited. They're complete you know, they're, they're kind of one and done. So yeah. last year's financials are now tagged and available. We're never going to go back and change those financials. And sure. so to, um, but that cost would repeat to do this year's financials. So we would uh, have to pay another $20,000 if oh, we I use see. the okay. same vendor 
this year. Now, that was the MSRB's individual experience. And there's probably some caveats there. We went out to bid for this service and there were higher cost providers, but there were also lower cost providers Mm. available. And we understand that there are also open source free solutions available in the marketplace. So just because the MSRB paid to have this service done doesn't mean that everyone else needs to pay to do it. Um, we chose to do it because this struck the right balance for us in from a um, experience standpoint of trying to understand what how, how to minimize um, staff time and burden on on embedding the tags. So that's the cost side of the equation where there's, I think, some unanswered questions that remain. On the benefit side, here's where I think we have the greatest challenge, and that is the lack of uniform reporting definitions and standards in the muni market. The goal, presumably, of greater market transparency is to have comparability so that you can compare this issuer's financials with that issuer's financials. And when you're comparing one to the other, you know that they're apples to apples. But today, you're really comparing potentially apples to oranges in the muni market because not all issuers audit their financials, not all issuers who audit their financials audit them on an annual basis. Some issuers are on a biannual audit cycle and not all issuers who audit their financials follow gap. So you have non-gap financials in the marketplace as well. And so you've got an apples to oranges problem. So making it more transparent and accessible, I think is part of the solution to improving transparency in our market, but it's not the entire solution. We've got to get to the apples and oranges. And then finally, if I could just uh, touch on unintended consequences and risk. There have been some market commentators who have raised a concern that if this bill were to be enacted, that the costs and the burdens might be so great to create machine-readable financials that it would drive issuers out of the public markets and into the private markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't personally share that view. I think on the margin, we you might see that happen where a private market bank loan might be more beneficial to more cost effective to an issuer than 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 a public market transaction but i don't think that um the risk that the muni market will go away and um you know we're going to see um just uh issuers resort to private markets to finance infrastructure that risk seems um a bit overblown to me I would agree with that. I mean, it seems to me that you know, muni issuers who head to the private bank loan market are doing so to sort of unburden themselves from the reporting requirements, um, as, as well as just like the sort of fees that go along with just a traditional bond sale, right? All those council fees, uh, underwriting, um, you know, so on and so forth. So it's a, for them to save ten to $15,000 on getting their financials computer readable doesn't seem like that's a game changer there. So. Right. Agreed. 
Well, definitely something to watch since it, you said it might be one of the um, few pieces of legislation that's able to pass. So definitely something to watch. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about ESG. Um, you know, there's been a lot of pushback um, in the muni market and other asset classes, um, you know, given this fear of greenwashing. And then there's also political blowback to ESG at this point. So how is the MSRB grappling with the, the rise of ESG as well as, you know, some of the the doubts about um, greenwashing and that sort of thing. So this is another reason why it's been such an interesting and challenging year. We are definitely seeing the muni market evolve with respect to the integration of ESG within it. Specifically, we've seen investors begin to allocate capital specifically to sustainable or impact investing. We've seen there are now, to my knowledge, three dedicated ETFs to sustainable muni investing in our space. And two of those three ETFs launched in the last 12 months. So we're seeing investor allocation here to the ESG space in the muni market. We're seeing credit rating agencies integrate certain ESG factors into their underlying credit rating process, as well as produce ESG scores or assessments on issuers. We are seeing at least anecdotally, I'm aware of one instance in which bond issuers are refusing to insure some credits due to climate related risks. And we're seeing state and local government issuers engage in the practice of ESG labeling of their bond deals. We're seeing green bonds, social bonds, sustainability bonds. And I read a Bloomberg article that estimated that approximately 10% of the total issuance in the muni market carries now some sort of an ESG label. So we are definitely witnessing the integration of ESG within our market. And I believe these practices warrant regulatory attention because they raise potential concerns from a regulatory compliance standpoint for the entities that we regulate, as well as from an investor and issuer protection standpoint. So as a result, as you noted, Amanda, the MSRB issued a request for information to try to better understand what's happening in our marketplace with respect to ESG. We had a very strong response to, to our RFI. And um, Eric, I would say the response was similar in tone to uh, some of the response we got from our one minute time of trade. Yeah, I would imagine. It's a lot of like, boo this man, right? right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the things that's made my job so challenging this past year is we've seen parts of financial regulation become politicized. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. And ESG is a perfect example. I'll, I'll paraphrase, Eric, some of the comments that we received with respect to our ESG RFI, and they would go along the lines of, you're crazy, yeah. you've exceeded your statutory authority, can't believe you're asking these questions, um, you're engaging in culture wars, you're a woke regulator um, <laughs> asking these questions. and And my response to what I'll characterize as those types of political accusations is that 
we have a responsibility as a regulator to understand how the market we're charged with regulating is evolving and changing. The alternative is we remain in ignorance and we have no idea how the market we regulate is evolving and changing. So I believe the responses that we received were very insightful. And I wanted to share just a couple of the themes that that we heard back from the public in response to our RFI. One of them, uh, there's almost unanimous um, consensus amongst the commenters that with respect to the muni market, it's premature for regulation right now with respect to ESG because there are emerging best practices and market-based solutions that are rapidly evolving and that any regulatory action right now has a risk of impeding or negating some of the market-based solutions and best practices that are forming. When you say market-based solutions, just so I understand, wrap this around my brain, um, you know, right now there's probably a handful of firms, not half a dozen, who are all doing their individual ESG scoring and and scoring them in a totally different way than the person next to them. Is that sort of what you were getting at? No. So I was going to suggest industry-led coalitions, you know, like an ICMA that that puts forth green bond principles that are trying to set standard uniform standards for issuers and other market participants t- to follow. Okay. I think I think the rating agencies are also potentially going to play a leading role here as they start talking about what are the material ESG factors that they are looking at in terms of rating credits and aligning on what are some of these key financial metrics that that um, that are important to understanding the impact of ESG. So that's kind of what I'm referring to with respect to evolving market-based solutions here. A second key theme that emerged was that there are in fact some potential compliance challenges with respect to ESG under our current rulebook. Regulated entities raised issues with respect to the primary market and what their due diligence standards are with respect to underwriting a green bond issue. Are they responsible for validating that it's a green bond, however that's defined? In the secondary market, Dealers raise concerns, regulatory compliance concerns around continuing disclosures. If I have a customer who wants to buy a green bond and that green bond was issued, for instance, five years ago, do I have any assurance that it's still green today? And do I have an obligation um, uh, if to my customer around that? Municipal advisors also raise some potential challenges on giving advice to state and local governments on putting an ESG label on their bond deal and also advice with respect to pricing these types of bonds. And of course, um, municipal advisors have a fiduciary duty to their state and local government clients. And so ESG is presenting potential compliance challenges for municipal advisors. And then finally, I would just note that market participants thought that the MSRB 
could help improve market transparency through some technology enhancements to our EMMA system with respect to ESG, whether it's improving our search functionality and being able to find that green bond that you might want to invest in or how we display ESG related information or how we um, allow the submission of voluntary disclosures regarding ESG on our EMMA website. These are all areas that we are um, all suggestions that we are taking um, under under consideration. You could use like a cool green leaf like we do on Bloomberg. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It'd be like uniform look for people searching for these things. That's right. Yeah. So Mark, just really quickly, because I know this is a hot topic, like what are the next steps on the ESG front? Is it similar to the trade reporting where you're, you know, doing more internal research and talking with stakeholders? Or is there anything coming down the pipeline on the ESG front that we should be aware of? So there there is no pending regulatory proposal. There's no proposed rulemaking that the MSRB is planning at this point. I think we agree with the public comments that we received that regulation is premature in this space, but we're also listening to and continuing to monitor the potential compliance challenges that were raised by regulated entities. Because if those, if ESG continues to evolve and some of those compliance challenges come to fruition and, and they really present real challenges under our rules, then going back to where we started the podcast from, we may need to modernize our rules to reflect a changing market and and the integration of ESG securities in our market. Yeah. We're not at that point yet, in my opinion, but um, but we may be. I would note on that front, though, that one regulatory initiative that that we are paying attention to is SEC rulemaking on climate risk disclosures. As you know, back in March, the SEC proposed climate-related disclosure requirements for public companies. These pro proposed disclosure rules don't apply to state and local governments in the muni market, of course, but I think they'll be very instructive to see what happens with public companies and how public companies begin to disclose climate-related risks if this rule goes forward and becomes adopted. I think they could be instructive for, for how this market, the broader market might evolve with respect to ESG. And so I think that's something worth watching and something that we're monitoring. I know we're getting close to wrapping up and, and Amanda has a question she wants to get to. And uh, we got some uh, feedback from like our mini chat room. And the one overwhelming question was, what is your favorite rule? Which G is your favorite? <laughs> That's like no one's ever asked me that before. Well, you're right welcome. Now, right, <laughs> thank you. I would say right now my favorite rule is G14 on trade reporting. I've been okay. spending a lot of time thinking about that rule. We've been spending a lot of time internally analyzing the data. In fact, just yesterday I had a conversation as part of our stakeholder outreach and engaging with the dealer community to better understand um, the, the potential impact of this rule, I had a conversation with two small firms, two small broker dealer firms to better understand 
some of their dynamics in terms of trade reporting. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of like asking a parent, which is your favorite child? So, so I should say, I don't have one favorite rule for all time, but the one I'm spending a lot of time with now is G14. That's a fair answer. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. So um, all the, the data that you mentioned, is just, um, it definitely feels like it presents a bit of a conundrum for stakeholders in the market. Um, Want to shift, I hate to end on a kind of sad note, but we are starting to see um, job cuts hit the muni market um, with especially some of the larger banks, um, you know, they're kind of culling investment bankers, you know, are you, what are you hearing from stakeholders about this? And are you expecting to see more of that hit the industry going forward? So we are without a doubt coming off of a tough year for munis. And so whenever there's a pullback or a contraction in the market, you're always worried about the impact on the people who work in the financial services sector. And we are starting to read those same stories about banks, um, you know, who have already begun cutting staff. I think the muni market is on track right now for potentially the worst performance in decades. We've seen benchmark yields across the curve up 200 to 250 basis points year to date. But one ray of bright light was this last month where we saw yields stabilize a bit and then actually rally. I think where the market goes next year depends in part on how, how the market expects inflation and where retail investors demand is going to be. I've kind of given up a long time ago trying to guess what the Fed is going to do with interest rates. So I'm not going to be much help or very insightful there too. But I do want to provide your listeners with a recap of just a couple of the different perspectives that we have on what we're seeing in the market, because it might just be insightful from, from, from a regulator standpoint. Um, so on, on the supply side, there's no question unequivocally, there's been a very significant decrease in the supply, new issue supply of uh, volume this year. It's down 20% so far. And no matter how you cut it, um, issuance is flat to down across essentially every sector. On the demand side, there's a more nuanced and interesting story here that, again, I don't have the answer for why, but um, maybe, Amanda, you you can do some interviews and do some research and come up with a story why, what's happening on the demand side. Because on the one hand, we're seeing massive outflows from uh, municipal bond, bond funds, mutual funds, um, to the tune of 200 billion plus, uh, or excuse me, 100 billion plus this year to date. But on the flip side, we're seeing net inflows to muni ETFs. And I've been trying to figure out why. Is it investors moving out of municipal bond funds and into ETFs? Or is it new money that's coming in and going into ETFs, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're arbitrage accounts thinking the market's oversold and um, um, they're coming in uh, through ETFs. But why are we seeing 
net outflows from bond funds and net inflows to ETFs? That's a question that I don't have an answer to. Cheap data? Then, sorry? Cheap data? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and then just one final market perspective from the MSRB standpoint is around sales and trading. So this is an unbelievable year. Secondary market trading volume has reached an all-time record and an all-time high. The number of secondary market trades is up almost 60% this year. And the previous record for the most trades in a year since we started tracking trades was back in 2008 during the financial crisis where there was a little over 11 million trades in muni bonds that happened in, in calendar year 2008. Well, in calendar year 2022, we've already surpassed that amount and we've got another month left to go in the trading year. So this, this year will set that new high watermark for secondary market trading. Just another way to look at that, over the last 15 years from 2007, to 2021. So the last 15 years, there were only eight months where we saw more than a million trades. In 2022, just this year alone, seven out of the past eight months have had a million trades. So the scale of trading has just been um, um, through the roof. And I think it just goes to show you um, some of the volatility that we're seeing in our market, some of the uncertainty, what's happening when you see a very, very rapid rise in, in rates and a lot of uncertainty about where it's going to stop. We've even seen the, the dislocation extend beyond the muni market. And I'm, I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen here. And for the first time in a very long time, we see an inverted treasury yield curve. The 30-year treasury is at a three spot seven seven. The five years at a three spot nine. The two years at a four spot four, and the one-year T-bills at a four spot seven. So, um, even the treasury yield curve is upside down. Yeah. And so these are extraordinarily challenging and difficult times with a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty, and 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 um, that makes all of our jobs tougher, I think. Yeah, thank you very much. I don't, want to, I don't want to end on a sad note either, but I want to tell our listeners that this is the last podcast Amanda is going to be joining us for. And I personally am very sad about this, but uh, Amanda's moving on to a new role and we wish her the best and all of that and thank her for her help on all the podcasts so far. They've been tremendously successful uh, in part due to Amanda's hard work. So thank you very much. Thank you. And um, thanks so much, Mark. This was a great um, last podcast yeah. to do. Um, it just strikes me that the MSRB is involved in a lot of really interesting initiatives that are really challenging and dynamic. So it was really helpful to learn more about them. So great way to cap off the BI podcast. Thank you. Today was great. And we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.